podcast one production. Jenny Cooney has been a part of Hollywood for 30 years, reporting on all the Aussie stars, from Hoags to the Hemsworths, Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie and beyond. This is Aussies in Hollywood. Well, if you're one of the millions of people that were obsessed with big little lies like I was, you can thank Aussie producer Bruna Papandrea. Bruna's now one of Hollywood's biggest producers and she's had an amazing journey. She grew up poor in Adelaide, she worked her butt off on little Aussie independent movies and she even went to work for two of the greatest filmmakers in the world, Sidney Pollack and Anthony Minghella. Then, as if that wasn't enough, Bruna teamed up with Reese Witherspoon and they made female-driven movies like Gone Girl and Wild, which earned an Oscar nomination for Reese. And finally, Bruna and Reese brought Nicole Kidman into the picture and Big Little Lies was the result. I've met Bruna many times over the years. She's close to all the other Aussies we know in Hollywood, including Simon Baker, Anthony LaPaglia, Naomi Watts, Nicole... You know, all those one-name Aussies we all know so well. And right before she started working on Big Little Lies 2, she invited me into her Santa Monica office space and we had a coffee to talk about her amazing career. We're in your groovy offices. We are. We're in the made-up stories offices in Santa Monica, the home where it all happens. So you're sharing offices with other companies or? Yeah, we kind of sublet space from our friend Teddy Schwartzman, who owns Black Bear Pictures, who's a wonderful producer and a friend. And we're in a, what kind of room? It's a meeting room? This is our, we call it our dorm room. This is our dorm room. This is why the couches are very relaxed. Um, We have all our meetings in here, including like script meetings. So we have that, that's kind of a whiteboard over there. And then we screen some stuff in here. That's our screen. But yeah, this is our kind of everything room. And we have some voices in the background coming from an mm. office next door. Some so it's creative, all people doing creative things next exactly. door. Exactly. Yeah. Everyone exactly. creative. Exactly. Now, how many people are working for you these days? It's getting bigger by the day, actually. Steve and I have like three people here in Los Angeles, three women. And then in Australia, we have obviously Jodie Madison, who runs the Australian office, and we just hired a young girl who's kind of a bit of a protege for Jodie, uh, whose name is Lucinda. Lots of ladies. Well, you've been doing this a really long time, and yet it does. It's such feels, a young age. <laughs> yeah, you're <laughs> such a child. <laughs> exactly. It must definitely feel like when you suddenly have offices in two countries and a whole lot of staff. At this point in your career, things have changed a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's still relatively small from in my mind, considering the output. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm always very reluctant. Like, I'm always, you know, careful to kind of grow at the right, at the right pace. Um, and also not not to have huge offers, you know, not to spend the money in the right places. So give us an idea of, like, what your day looks like. Okay, yeah, well, <laughs> we start filming on Monday, um, the second season of Big Little Lies. I know, I can't believe it. People are like, how did that happen so quickly? I was like, well, it's been happening slowly but surely. Right now it's, it's kind of a crazy time, so I'm splitting my time between this office and the production office in West Hollywood, um, I'm prepping that and we also have quite a few things kind of going into production this year. Um, so I'm kind of dividing my own time and, and the girls' time between kind of trying to actively get other things up and running, including two, you know, a couple of other television shows where we have writer's room started. Right, you just announced a show with Nicole. 
Yeah, well, that's that. Uh, yeah, that's not even one of the ones I was talking about. But yeah, we just announced this fantastic new show. I'm so happy it's out there um, that David Kelly's writing and has written some of already. Um, that is just a fabulous limited series um, set in New York with Nicole. So I'm really excited about that. Wow. So you've had a very big couple of years. Uh, you've had a very big life. You no, know. no. Yeah, the last few years have been great. <laughs> big life. <laughs> so take us back to the beginning. You started out with a single mum and three yeah. siblings? Yeah, so I grew up with my my mum. She was already separated from my father basically when I was born. At the time I was born, my twin brother and sister were only one year old, so we were super close, the three of us. Then my mother had another child when I was 13, so there's four of us total. Um, And, yeah, my mum was pretty amazing. I grew up in, you know, a kind of housing commission house in Elizabeth in South Australia. But surrounded by a very close Italian family. My mother had a lot of sisters. And this is what I talk about a lot is like, you know, I was really lucky because despite the kind of rough area I grew up in, we had an amazing music program at the the school I went to and I had just two amazing teachers who had these after-school music programs and musicals and, you know, they just kind of saw who I was and kind of inspired me to be kind of part of that community of theatre. And that's really where I kind of... I suppose, discovered my love for entertainment and for telling stories. Um, And it was really that exposure that kind of propelled me to kind of where I am now, weirdly, Um, even though it seemed like, you know, a long way away. Um, But it is true that kind of thing that people say, it's like despite your circumstances, it only takes, you know, one person sometimes to make you believe you can do anything you want to do. So I believe you had your first sort of brush with people that are now in the business was a documentary crew that came to your school? Yeah, exactly, when I was 13. Was it really Mandy Walker? Mandy Walker shot it. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Ray Argall directed it. My still now very good friend, Christina Posan, produced it. Um, and, um, And Mandy Walker. Isn't that crazy? And that was when I was 13. And it was really through staying in contact with them, particularly Christina, she became my kind of pen pal, that really gave me kind of exposure to the film business. Well, see, you were already that kind of go-getter, yeah. clearly. Yeah. Right? I definitely think you're born... how many 12-year-olds yeah. pursue a producer and end up going to stay with them? Exactly. You know? No, I think you are... There's part of me that always thinks, even with my own kids, you're, you're definitely born with a certain temperament. And mine was driven. So you studied law, but you said you always, you know, you wanted to be an actress or a journalist yeah. and you had the bug with the theatre. Yeah. So then why did you go into law? I really did love school, firstly, and I just felt like that was the kind of safe path commerce law, which is the, the path that I started on. And um, even though I'd really, from a young age, kind of been involved in the arts and all I really wanted to be was a journalist, on-air journalist, of course, um, <laughs> or I wanted to be an actor, but I got rejected from every drama school. That's the other thing. That's kind of, I suppose, what led me to law. I did apply to drama school and I got rejected from acting school. You applied to NIDA? I applied to NIDA, VCA, WAPA, like you name it. They all rejected me. (laughs) Well, that didn't stop you, at least for going into law. It stopped you for a minute. You decided to go into law instead. I went into law, but that did not last long. After six months, I kind of realised that that was not my path and that, that I really just wanted to work in the arts in some way. And so then I just started kind of exposing myself to different jobs in the arts, which is my advice to young people is just expose yourself to different things and sometimes it becomes clear what you should be doing. Then I worked on the Adelaide Theatre Festival 
and started kind of getting involved in theatre, that actually kind of, again, opened up the world of the arts to me and that's kind of where it sprung from. That Very soon after that I met Stephen Saul, the playwright, and he encouraged me to enter a play I'd written into the Young Playwrights Conference and weirdly so that, you were a writer as well oh no I, I know I'm a really bad writer I had good ideas but I'm not a great writer so I didn't know this before I started doing my homework on you but you started out working with Dion and yeah Anju. Dion and Andrew was my first job I can't believe yeah. it it's so funny yeah. how everybody comes full circle and yeah. you know people and we yeah. all know the same my people. first job I was producing commercials um a Dion BB by the way won an Oscar a yeah. cinematographer Chicago yeah yeah. So yeah, that was my first job. They had a commercial company, and I started off as their assist an assistant. And within a year, I was kind of producing her in commercials, you know. And I, I actually have a lot of friends who started in commercials, but it's actually a great way to get to kind of understand and work with equipment, um, and then kind of understand the craft and get to do it on a more regular basis. And that's really making commercials is how I finance my first short film. In Australia, and that's kind of how I how I really started my film career. But it was so really great. So, do you, do you feel like that's everybody needs to make a short film? I don't know. Making shorts, in my opinion, making a short is as hard as making like a low budget feature. So I'd just go straight to the low budget feature <laughs> if I do it again. I think. I think that's a better path. <laughs> you may as well. And that was uh, that was better than sex. Was that the film? Yeah, yeah. Which was an amazing experience. Still one of the great experiences of my life. Nine hundred thousand um, dollars. I did everything. Picked up the actors, made the curtains for the office. <laughs> Literally did everything. Made the curtains for made the, the office. Made the curtains. I made the curtains. Yeah, for the office. Yeah, you do everything on those movies. It's kind of great. I used a friend of mine who owned a restaurant in Melbourne who never catered and he was a chef and he drove his pots and pans up and he lived in the apartment downstairs and he did all the catering and he would go to the fish markets every day and like make vongole for lunch. I mean, it was amazing. You know, when you sometimes when you have limited resources, you just can do things outside the box and they're the best experiences. You know, you never know where your choices are going to take you and that film took you somewhere that yeah. you would never in a million years probably have expected. First of all, it took you to Toronto yeah. and then you met Anthony Minghella, one of the great directors, talented Mr Ripley, Cold Mountain, you name it, there's a million. But, yeah. um, how, tell us about that meeting. I mean, it was kind of a funny thing. You know, I was at Toronto with Better Than Sex and I, a friend of mine, an Irish friend, had produced all of Samuel Beckett's plays into movies and 17, all 17 plays, and 17 had been directed by different people, everyone from Patricia Razima to Atta McGoyan to Anthony to John Crowley. It was an amazing group of people. And they, you know, various lengths, and they had made this amazing, before the anthology was common, yeah. they'd made this amazing anthology. Anthony was there. So I was with my Irish friends. We were just having so much fun at the festival, and Anthony at one point... My, what I found out later was that he was in Toronto also meeting, you know, very successful, you know, development people and producers to run his the office in London for the company he had with Sidney Pollack. And the 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 one of the directors at the time, Damien O'Donnell, who was a wonderful Irish director, said to me, you know, he's looking for someone to run his company, you know. He's, that's why he's talking to you. And I was like, don't be ridiculous. Like, I'm, you know, I, I couldn't imagine anyone wanted to pay me to you know, do what I do. I was just going to go back to Australia and make another movie and I'd had the best experience making that film. Then I found that Better Than Sex got into the London Film Festival and no one could go, so I went. I was like, oh, I should probably call that guy, Anthony Mangella. And so I called him up and said, oh, I'd love to come see you. And I sat down with him and then he was like, do you mind reading this book and reading the script and giving me your opinion? And then it became clear to me, oh, maybe they are actually interested in me working for their company. So I did that. And then 
he said, you know, I'd really like you to meet Sidney Pollack. And I was like, okay, great. Well, he's in Los Angeles. And I was like, oh, okay, we'll have to go back to Sydney. And it's not like they, were, they weren't offering to pay for my trip. You know, so I was like, That's oh, a very I've... expensive job interview. So I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can totally go via LA on my way back to Sydney. So I loaned $1,000 from my Irish director friend, Damien. Thanks, Damien, if you're listening. And I flew to LA and I, I mean, I'll never forget it because if you've never been to LA and you're literally driving into, I think it was Paramount Studios at the time where Sydney's office was and yeah. you meet Sydney Pollock and it's completely completely surreal and basically kind of in the room he was like yeah well Anthony really loves you and I flew back to Australia the next day and then the phone rang and they were like we'd love you to come work for us in London can you be here in three weeks and here's what we're going to pay you and I I was able to just jump on a plane and go live there three weeks later I was literally living and working for these two men and it was that was obviously the game-changing moment in my life uh, and the moment that I totally attribute to everything else happening. But they were also taking a chance on you, weren't they? Yeah, they they were. My God. I I said to him, like, you know, we had this amazing office and we'd have lunch together every day and Walter Murch would cut upstairs and Mm. um, I lived around the corner. It was really just, you know, amazing. And and I said to him once, like, Anthony, why did you hire me? Like, I, I just, you could have hired anyone. I mean, everyone wanted that job. And he was like, well, I thought you were smart, but I just also knew we'd have fun and that you'd make me laugh every day. You know, he didn't care that I wasn't the type of smart that was like, you know, I'd been to an Ivy League college or, you know, I hadn't been to college. I dropped out, in fact, of college. But I listened to my instincts and, you know, I spoke my truth, even though I was talking to these amazing men who had so much more experience, I still told them what I thought. And I think that was very valuable to them, was to have someone who kind of really responded with passion and um, from their heart, which is also a lesson that I try and impart to young people all the time, is like, just be truthful to who you are and, you know, just be truthful to your opinion, because what else is there, you know, if it's not your taste? Um, yeah. yeah, so there began the kind of next five years of my life, which was like my film school, really. that was. So like what films were they involved with while you were working for them? He was shooting Cold Mountain just as I'd started to work for him. So that's where I'd, I'd always known Nicole, but that's where she and I became quite good friends. Um, and so I was mostly in London, although I went back and forth to Romania. Um, and then we developed the number one ladies detective agency while I was there and breaking and entering and many other things as producers. I went back and forth to LA actually quite a lot. So it was kind of amazing because I got to learn the business here while not having to kind of live in it, but kind of bit my toe in the water and, mm. and got to know Sydney, obviously, who was also an incredible, incredible man. And you were really good friends with Gia and Anthony long before that, right? Yeah, so, G- yeah, so my, my very first... Gia Caridis and Anthony yeah, and Yeah, so even before the um, Better Than Sex experience, I had come to New York and I was very young, um, kind of because I'd broke up with a guy and I was like, oh, well, I just got to go to New York with no money and stayed on a friend's, like, couch. Peter Phelps, actually. No. I know, yeah, Peter Phelps, yeah. And his girlfriend Jane at the time. And I stayed on their couch. They were amazing. And they were friends with Gia and Anthony. And I'd known Gia, obviously, from Australia. And they kind of paid... They Firstly, they introduced me to a friend who owned a restaurant, so I worked at their friend's restaurant part-time, who had been still dear friends of mine. And... Um, and they paid me to read scripts for them. And so that's kind of what kept me going. And then G was doing this low-budget movie with Luke Perry and I ended up interning on it and getting a co-producer credit. So that was really before Better Than Sex was like my first film exposure. So, so there was a whole wow. kind of weird New York chapter. I had heard about you for years through Gia and other people. I was always hearing Bruna, Bruna, Bruna. 
And um, I don't. We didn't meet. I think until Nicole's yeah, wedding. Exactly. Right. Exactly. How ironic. I remember. I remember the day. The hen's <laughs> night. Was it the hen's, hen's night? Hen's night, as we say in Australia. Yes. Bachelorette party for the Americans. <laughs> well, yeah. we had to bring recipes. It was a pretty tame <laughs> hen's party. <laughs> My kind of hen's party. Very tame. Mine was very tame as well. But she's been an incredible uh, yeah. force in your life, right? Yeah. No, she's I mean, been amazing. When you, met, you knew her before Cold Mountain, but that's when yeah. you guys really... Yeah, that's when we really became friends. And in fact, for years and years, her and Pear, her producing partner, we've been we've been trying to find something for... Even when I ran Groundswell Films, you know, we, we almost got involved in Rabbit Hole at one point. We had tried so many times to find stuff together and it never quite worked out. It was always super organic and great conversation, but for some reason didn't happen. And and I said to her recently, I don't think it was supposed to happen until Big Little Lies. I think that's what we were supposed to do together. So when I first read that book, it was overwhelmingly clear to me that she had to that I had to do it with her and Pear, and that's kind of what happened. Wow. Um, going back to the, your film school with mm. Anthony and Sydney, um, I've heard you when you were at G'day USA and you made your speech, you. You talked about some of the great advice that you yeah. use all the time from then. Tell yeah. us a bit about that because I actually have thought about that mm. line ever uh, since yeah. you said it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. I think about it every day. The thing that I live by, um, and don't always get right, um, in fact recently it happened to me where um, <laughs> we weren't as delicate with a writer as we should have been, you know, it, but he used to say to me that you can enable or disable a writer with your words, so be careful how you use your words. Not just writers, but filmmakers, actors, and um, that's pretty much everybody in life. It's right? pretty much, and and I think it's, but particularly when someone's poured their heart and soul into something, you know, yeah. even if something hasn't turned out as good as you'd hoped in the first go round, you know, so many times I've sat in rooms, um, particularly on sometimes on big studio projects where people they just cut straight to the negative, and there's always positive, you know, whatever it is, like so. You know, certainly I was trying lead with what I'm excited about, convey my passion convey the fact that I believe someone has the talent, maybe we're not there yet, there's a lot of work to do, but that we're going to work on it together. So that is definitely the advice I live by, no matter hopefully which creative person I'm talking to. And the other thing he said to me, which I find quite funny now because, you know, he he Anthony was a little like me, it's hard to say no, right? So he was always asked to talk at things, you know, he was obviously the head of the BFI at one point. But he said to me, someone gave him some advice once, which was like, when someone asks you to do something, pretend it's that night and see if you'd still say yes. It is, that's another bit of advice that I remember kind of all the time. What were the most surreal moments with those two? I still cannot imagine what it must have been like to spend five years yeah, I mean, literally in every, the company yeah. of two of the greatest yeah. filmmakers of all time. I mean, every day was pretty surreal, I have to say. But Anthony, yes, but also Sydney, because Sydney was iconic in, in a way that, mm. like, you know, and to sit – and he was a great storyteller. So, you know, he would tell you the story of, like – because I was like, why don't you act more, you know? You're such a wonderful actor. And he would say, like, well, I only act, like, basically – he was like – I was like – because we were talking about Will and Grace. He was like, well, I, I like to keep the wardrobe when I act. So, like, I thought the wardrobe would be good in Will and Grace. And, you know, <laughs> the wonderful David Cohan who had worked for him was obviously the creator of Will and Grace. And so that was a great incentive for Sydney to go and do that show. Um, and he told me, like, when he did – this is probably a famous story, but like even when he did Tootsie, he said Dustin like sent him like roses every day for a week saying, please be my agent. Like, re like you know, he was he was just like, he was always convinced and convinced by people's passion. Um, it was almost impossible for me to work for anyone else after working for them because it just doesn't really get any better than that. 
In fact, so where did yeah. you go after that? After that, I went for a year. I went to Green Street Films to work with John Panotti and Fisher Stevens, which was kind of, uh, I, I suppose, my entry out of London was to New York, just for a very short period. So you really wanted to end up in America. I wanted to. What I really wanted, I think, I loved working for Auntie and Sydney, but. It was a lot of development and I had obviously come from being an independent producer, so I wanted to ultimately go somewhere that had money to make their own movies so mm-hmm. that I would be in production. So I went there for a year and then I got offered an opportunity. At the time, Michael London had just started Groundswell and had raised a big fund. And so I went to run his company for five years. I mean, we must have made seven or eight movies in that five years. It was a very busy time and I was on set basically for five years. So Including that was the famous Milk. Including Milk, yes, which, which was for which I was Oscar on set for a lot of. Um, that must have been incredible. Yeah, it was incredible. That whole five years was amazing. But ultimately, and I would say this to Michael, whenever we disagreed, he would say, well, when you have your own company, you can do what you want. And he, he was right, you know. It's true. And in a weird way, it was, it was the thing that propelled me after working for him, I started my own company. And then I made my first movie really for my own company, which was Warm Bodies. Um, Which was an incredible success. It was yeah, a, sort of a low success. budget. Yeah, lowish. Right? Yeah, it was lowish. Like I mean, it wasn't million. low, low, but, yeah, it was, but it was a big, big success. Yeah, for it, so and yeah. people, when they heard that story, thought, "You're kidding, right?" And yeah, and I mean, it was a sort of movie where you know the zombie element. I'm not yeah, a, a girl who likes those at all. I just made all. my second zombie movie. I totally I've never seen fell one. in love with. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I fell in love with that yeah. movie. Yeah, and that you. Were, I remember meeting you. You were pregnant with the twins. Yeah. When you were like That's promoting right. that film. That's right. You're so right because I went to the premiere literally a week after they were so born. So you really had everything going on at the same time. Yeah. That's I what mean, happens. At what point did you meet your husband Steve in all of this? Nine years ago. I think we're about to celebrate our eighth wedding anniversary. So yeah, it did all happen at once. It was kind of a strange thing in a weird way and I had children obviously when I was a bit older but it was the great equaliser for me because I stopped stressing about some of the smaller things, it made me, I don't know, I just, I started making better decisions for myself because my time suddenly felt very valuable. It just, it also just made me feel every decision I made was, you know, just going to be for the right reasons, not for financial reasons, but just because of the stories that I wanted to tell. And so that was really the path that started um, just post Warm Bodies with, you know, the formation of Pacific Standard and that period of my life. Now, did you know Reese before you guys started that company at all? We knew each other a little bit. You know, Isla Fisher was our mutual friend and we'd met at a dinner that her and Sasha had had and what we realised, both of us, is, you know, I'm friends with a lot of actors in their 40s and so I'd been reading for those girls for years and been very frustrated on their behalf about the lack of roles yeah. and representation for women. So Reese and I really came together at a time where we both our sole focus was really creating more roles for women. And was it easy in the beginning to find those, find the material or find the material is easy, getting it made, yeah. not so, or what? I mean, in hindsight, it's so, it felt easy in hindsight. Look, you know, the first two things we found were Wild and Gone Girl in very close proximity to each other. And obviously there was lightning in a bottle. Both those books were enormously successful. So to have both those books kind of on the trajectory at the same time, in, in hindsight, it did, it did. It felt like the wind was on our backs kind of very early and we were very clear about what we wanted to do. And I think once once people trust you with their books, with their material, and you do a good job, particularly if they're successful as those two things were, 
then other people trust you. And so that brings more material. And so the company really grew very fast from that point. It was kind of at that time, obviously, we started thinking about television or limited series, whatever we want to call it now. It's all just, you know, blurred into one big content. And then obviously the kind of, in a weird way, the crowning jewel was Big Little Lies, you know. So that Big Little Lies for me was a little bit like wild in the sense that it was like, oh, this is this should be the first thing that we do in the television space. It was special. So what was Experience of Wild like to make? It was just, it was an amazing kind of, you know, I remember, I'll never forget seeing the first cut of that movie. It was quite a long cut. But I just remember thinking I felt like we'd made a movie that was completely unique. And talking about um, Big Little Lies, I mean, that that was a book. You and Reese were already in a partnership when you yeah, found Yeah, we were in a partnership and I read this book mostly because someone told me it was written by an Australian and obviously Leanne had had huge success with Husband's Secret but I'd never heard of her. I, can't, I mean, I say this to her now but I was like, I'd never heard of Husband's Secret. Neither Reese, of course, had read it because Reese had read everything and... Um, and I couldn't believe that there was an Australian novelist that was that successful that I didn't know about because my, you know, as you know, my other goal in life is just to make things back in Australia as well because it's my home and I love it and there's no way better to make films. And um, so I was on set in New Orleans and I read it overnight and, you know, I was like, it was so obvious to me like, oh, my God, I'm going to send this to Nicole. We're going to go make it in Sydney. <laughs> that was my plan. I was like, this is perfect. And so I sent it to Nicole that day. She called me the next day. She happened to be getting on a plane to Sydney that week. She was like, I'll go meet Leon Moriarty. I was like, that's amazing. And um, Reese had started reading it and then Nicole read it and then Reese read it and Reese was like, this is great. I also want to be in it. Um, rightly, I think at the time she was like, look, I don't want to, <laughs> I'm not Australian. <laughs> the, the piece that wasn't Australian. Um, <laughs> you know, would you think about resetting it in California? And Leon was super open to that concept. Um, as anyone knows, all her books are actually set in Sydney. Um, but yeah. she was really open to that concept and she was amazing and we just made her promise that we would make it, get it made. She'd had several books under option and that we that Nicole would star in it, Reese would star in it. And we really kind of like held hands with her at the time. We're like, we promise we'll do this. And then we just started kind of putting it together. And again, very organically and quickly, we got a call saying David Kelly had read the book and was interested. What made you think of David Kelly? I mean, I'm such a big fan of his. Like, for me, mm. he kind of revolutionised TV. But to think about a, a man who had created all those shows to adapt um, a book yeah. about a group of women having yeah. this experience. Yeah. That- you know, what you realise when you sit down with him is, of course, he'd grown up. It was an obvious place to reset it in Northern California. And, you know, his kids had grown up in, in him and Michelle had raised their kids in these beachside communities. And he understood, you know, this world... And he just had such great insight. He also loved Leon's book. So it was kind of, as soon as we sat down with him, it was kind of a no-brainer. And then it was, you know, from there it just became, again, about who's the best partner to kind of hold hands with and make the best version of this show. And we sat down with various networks and we chose HBO. And and the getting that incredible group of women together, that you've become like this this little pack. Yeah. Um, you knew Laura Dern. How, yeah, how did, we'd made Tell us together. how the casting came about and who was involved with that. Yeah, we got John Mark Valet next and so then obviously when John Mark came on, it was only Nicole and Reese who were cast and so obviously we had a, a big ensemble to kind of build around that. And Shailene was literally our number one person for Jane. You know, she was someone that we had just watched grow up and we'd loved her in The Descendants. Oh, yeah. And, 
you know, but we also felt like, well, you know, would love to see her like play this young mother and, and kind of access parts of herself that maybe we hadn't seen. And she's one of the best human beings you'll ever meet. And so she was the next person to come on board. And then, of course, the conversation turned to um, Renata. And um, that was a no-brainer because Jean-Marc and Reese and I had just fallen in love with Laura through the experience of making Wild. And she was so, she was obviously the first person that we went to. And she said yes. And she was amazing. And then the, the Bonnie role, you know, Zoe was also, I think, I really think like if not the, the first person that we talked about for Bonnie. And, you know, Jean-Marc's a very instinctual person. He meets people and he has a very strong sense, you know, rather than like a traditional audition process. And he met Zoe and, and he was just 100% sure coming out of that meeting that she should play Bonnie and, and he was absolutely right. When you're in business with A-list movie stars like Nicole and Reese, I imagine a lot of doors are immediately open. How do you navigate as a producer when your partners are also yeah. incredibly famous? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think it's always a puzzle. doesn't matter if your partners are the producers or just actors. I have this kind of philosophy and I always felt like this when I was working with Reese on anything. It's like I treat them as I would any other actor, you know, like I must look after them, you know, we got to create the best environment, try and get them to take their producer hat off when they're actually working because you don't want them thinking about those things when they're playing a character. So I think there's times to kind of, you know, talk to them as producers and there's times to like, you know, support them and nurture them as a producer myself. So I feel like, and, you know, Nicole's producing partner pair, obviously, and I worked very closely together. Um, so, you know, it, I think it's always a balance in terms of scheduling and everything, but they were just both so committed to this and to just kind of making themselves kind of completely available. And it was kind of an amazing experience in that way. Um I think with a big ensemble, there's always like scheduling challenges, but we, I, I just think we dealt with them as they came up, like you would on any show. Yeah. yeah. For me, the biggest thing was that it was the longest thing I'd ever done, obviously, because you're talking yeah, about how long seven did it... hours. It was about 94 days. Um, and you all had to relocate for that whole time up in Northern California? No, we were, we we're a lot here, actually. We were a lot yeah. in California. We were only four weeks up in Monterey. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Sneaky. Smoke and mirrors, sneaky. Smoke and mirrors. <laughs> and is that the plan yeah. for season two? We're... I think we'll be a little bit more there this this season in Monterey, but yeah, it's a similar setup. As soon as it came out, it was pretty clear that it grabbed hold of the zeitgeist yeah. in some way that I don't think anyone expected. When was your first clue that it was beyond what you could have hoped for? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely seeing the first cut because he's so extraordinary, just even the way that he puts things together, Jean-Marc. I don't think you really know until you show it to people, right? So when it started airing and getting the kind of feedback that it got, and it was really something that grew and grew and grew, you know, as people started finding it, discovering it, talking about it. The thing that I think HBO did an amazing job of is, you know, because there's this perception that like anything with a woman at the centre or certainly women should only be marketed to women. And so HBO was really good about like making sure that it was advertised on Game of Thrones, that it was, you know, not, not just targeted women because my... What was really thrilling to me, and I realised very early, because I had all the dads coming up to me at preschool, with the dads, right? Like, oh, my God, I didn't expect to love it, but I loved it. The, the one thing I'll say is we knew, Nicole and Reese and Per and I knew that it was not a show that we wanted to be binge-watched. And, in fact, I think that was a key reason 
to choose HBO as a partner at the time because we felt like it needed to be a week-to-week experience that people kind of talked about that they watched together and it did end up becoming a kind of collective watching experience for audiences. Um, And then, you know, look, I'm one of those people who, for me, like awards recognition is amazing but I don't ever expect it. You know, I I have a pet peeve of people who in meetings say, well, you should do this movie because it's going to win Oscars or, you know, and people do it all the time. And, you know, for me, it's like the best thing you can do is create great work and, and then everything else feels like a bonus. And as I mean, Nicole and I talk about this all the time, it's lightning in a bottle what happened with Big Little Lies and you can't take that for granted, you know, in, 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 in a universe of so much incredible content being made. Um, it's like an, it's an amazing thing. And so we didn't take it for granted and we enjoyed it. We celebrated it. And, you know, I think part of that organic experience and the, the kind of way it was embraced is the reason that everyone wanted to come back and do it again. So having not been thinking about awards, once you got onto that yeah, train... it was great. ...the Emmys to the Golden Globes. <laughs> <laughs> it I was mean, amazing. I, I mean, the night of the Emmys, I will never forget your mum and how proud she was... <laughs> My God. ..holding your Emmy. Yeah. Um, you flew her over. I mean, obviously, that's been an incredible thing for you yeah. to be able to share this success yeah. with your mum, who was so cute at the G'day USA yeah. Awards yeah. too, and getting a picture with Margot Robbie. Oh, my God. I mean, that must mean an incredible amount to you. Yeah, no, it does. It means everything. I mean, I make jokes that my job in life is to introduce my mother to movie stars and get the, get her photo taken with them so she can put them on her Facebook. Um, it's kind of true. <laughs> you know, when I won the Emmy, I was like on the front page of the Adelaide paper, you know, because – and I and it's important to me to talk about where I'm from and yeah. the fact that other young women might look at that and go, well, I have a dream and I, you know, I, I want to be able to tell young people, like, don't give up on those dreams, like, you can do it. It's a really important message for me to convey, particularly in a time where young people are just told that they can't achieve anything, you know, because of all the noise around – so it was a pretty amazing moment, I have to say. I don't think I quite – I think Pear and I both had that experience where it wasn't clear how big a moment it was until it was actually happening. And then we were like, oh, my God. And then when you can't, don't think it can get any better, then you win a Golden Globe. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that room is a pretty amazing room, right, to yeah. be in? Yeah, it's a pretty amazing room. And, you know, it's – it's just crazy. It's, you know. Especially when you're the table that's getting up and going to the stage, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's all downhill from here. That's true. <laughs> now, uh, not to get all serious and glum, but mm. you've also had some health struggles mm. and I wonder if you can talk about how you deal with that in your day-to-day life, in your career and yeah. whether that gives you a different perspective on your career and everything you have. Yeah. I have lupus. Obviously, I got diagnosed and about Sjogren's. It's two two things. They're, they're hand-in-hand, these two uh, autoimmune conditions. Um, and I got diagnosed around the same time I got married. Everything happened to me apparently when I got married, um, <laughs> Steve. Um, <laughs> so the biggest problem with lupus is like it causes a lot of pain, right, joint pain, inflammation in your body. And so I have been on and off medication, mostly off because I don't love for me the effects of mm. the medication. Um, I would rather have the pain. I've been able to control it um, – because I do believe in the power of diet and exercise and I believe that you kind of can rejig your internal stuff going on in your body. So I've really tried to do that. And when I was pregnant, it was very difficult because I got very sick. So I had to go on medication. 
But it is it has been a struggle. You know, there's definitely things my husband has had to do pull a lot of the weight, particularly when our babies were smaller. He was the one that got up in the night. I had to have a lot of help. So that's what I say to people now. I'm like, listen, between my job and I'm very high functioning for someone with lupus. I'm like, between my job and my kids, you know, and my lupus, basically, I don't have a lot of time. You know, that's kind of how I spend my time. And just when you think you have it under control, because, you know, I haven't really had a bad health. Recently, I did get quite sick, but it was a big wake-up call that it doesn't actually matter what else is happening in your life. You have to prioritise your health. So, yeah, definitely I'm in the middle of it right now where I'm just like, okay, you've got it. That's the one thing you have to find time for. My friend described it recently as like buckets. You know, you've got the family bucket, the friend bucket, the, you know, the health bucket, the work bucket. And... For me, the, the the I was always the friend who was like always organizing dinners, always the one to make the phone call, always on top of the gifts. And I've definitely stopped being that person <laughs> because something has to go, right? right. Something yeah. has to suffer. And it's a good thing we're not all in the same boat at the same time. Exactly. Because then somebody else always exactly. picks up That's the That's exactly right. It's like swings and roundabouts. And, you know, but, you know, I wouldn't trade any of it. Mm. I feel very blessed. And, you know, despite the health issues... And despite in in some ways a lot of stress that's associated with that, I still think of it as all good stress in a weird way. You know, like it's not that there's anything such thing, my husband would say. Um, but I'm very happy, right, because I love what I do. Yeah. So it doesn't feel like a chore. I feel like now I'm at the beginning of building this amazing company and getting to do exactly what I want, which is, you know, such a gift. But not only do you have one child, you had to go oh, and have, have twins. twins. Yeah, exactly. And so what's it like? being a mom of twins I mean is there a big little lies experience exactly yeah. at school because I know yeah. I went through that with my son yeah, here yeah, in LA yeah it's very, I think that's why yeah. people love that show yeah. because we all know each it's of those true. archetypes right? it's, it's true <laughs> my husband doesn't like it when I say that but sometimes I'm like I don't want to be that big little lies mom you know the, I don't want to be Renata I don't want to be the pushy mom um <laughs> But I'm definitely a bit the one of that I'm, always brings a cup. Exactly, I'm a, I'm a bit of each of those characters. I think in Big Little Lies, it's uh, it's been amazing having twins. You know, I it was always my dream to have twins because I'd grown up. My twin actually died at birth. My I, my I had a twin oh, as well. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, I had a twin. Oh, so my mother had two sets. Yeah, my mother had two sets of twins in twelve months. Crazy. You're kidding? No, crazy. So your siblings are twins. My siblings are twins. My twin died like two days after we were born. And so I always had a thing about having twins and weirdly my husband did too. And I think partly because we met each other when we were older, you know, I knew that pregnancy would be hard on my body. So I was very happy to have one pregnancy, two babies. And we got really lucky. We got a boy and a girl, obviously. Um, But it's been amazing. It has literally been the great, there's literally nothing better in my life than, you know, these children. And, And also being in a marriage that I feel totally supported and, you know, we're kind of building something together and, yeah. But it does – there's people say, oh, this, this is the best stage and this is the best stage. And what you realise is every stage is kind of amazing and there's new things to learn about yourself and to learn about your children. And um, But, yeah, it's um, – they're like the light of my life. Such a That's such a corny thing to say, isn't it? But, but it's, it's so re- They're all cliches because and they're, they're true. And they're little Aussies. They've got their Aussie passports and, um, you know, their father is American, I'm Australian – we actually just bought an apartment back in Sydney that's going to that's being built right now, so that we can have. You know, our goal is to really have a home in both countries. Very yeah. important to us. I think that's a great goal. It's a great goal. What's better? It's all I really I want in life: Sydney, LA. And you're still really close to to make you you have that Aussie group of having been around the world and had those relationships like I've had with so many people for so long. 
where you, you get to be there when somebody's turning 50 or this is happening. I mean, talk about how important those relationships have been in your life, Naomi and yeah. Simon and Rebecca. I know. It's been amazing, actually. We've, we've had this group, this mostly Australian group. There are a couple of Americans. Our friend Molly Allen is one of them. She's, a, she's an American that's been with us. And then my new best friend, Margot Robbie, who I'd <laughs> never met. But now that's what I, that's basically what I say now, that she is my new best friend. And um, I spoke to her husband recently too and they're just, I mean, what amazing people, you know. And also I think the one thing that I, I share with them and it's really clear when you talk to Margot and Tom is like that love of trying to maintain those roots in Australia and America and trying to kind of take the kind of ability to to make films anywhere and like you know work between both places in yeah. the in in the, in the best way and so i think we really kind of share that love and hopefully we can do it together and i'm really inspired in the way that margot kind of has done it you know she's really actually standing she's she's putting herself in the movies like i tonya she's helping get them made she's bringing them to the forefront she's using that celebrity from those huge movies that she's doing and kind of doing it in the in the best most kind of organic way and so it's very inspiring, you know, to see that. Because I like to make jokes that, like, you know, I know another generation of Australians, but there's all these young Australians that I'm just getting to know. It's and that's true. exciting to me. Yeah. It is. And and now you're the one that can pass it down, you yeah. know, to the next generation. Yeah. If they right. want to work with me. They're like, no. Who's that old timer? I don't want to work with her. Um, <laughs> they should no, be so lucky. And it's, you know, it's definitely my goal to do that and, you know. To keep going back, I made two movies in Australia last year and we're going to hopefully make another two this year. So that's definitely my goal. Now, I always ask everybody this question because it's sort of the running theme of Aussies in Hollywood, mm. but everybody always makes those jokes, you know, what's in the water over there and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and everybody has a little bit of a different theory yeah. on... on it is, it, it is an pretty, pretty amazing number of Australians who have yeah. done so well out of Australia in this industry. I mean, do you... Do you see any particular themes or reasons that are yeah, consistent? Yeah, I mean, look, I think Australians are... Firstly, I do think we're incredibly hard workers and I don't think we take anything for granted, you know. I think that we come at it with a sense of kind of, uh, you know, optimism and I, I, I do. I think definitely the accent has something to do with it. I think somehow the accent... People like it. It calms people, makes them happy. I do think we come at it with like a sense of kind of ready to roll our sleeves up. And and I think America is amazing. I do think it's a country that like, you know, it's again, I hate to sound corny, but I do think it's a place that your dreams can come true if you're prepared to like really work hard and be bold and, you know, kind of try and make your way in the world. I've found nothing but like embrace. And, and I get asked all the time, actually, and not that the subject wants to turn to this, you know, because personally, have, have you experienced harassment? Have you experienced, you know, and, and gender bias? And um, I, I've not found that to be my experience, but I have to say I've also never put myself in a position where I've worked within kind of large organisations of male power. I just have never done that. My path has been quite different where I've always kind of forged my own path and in some ways been my own boss for a very long time and created hopefully very safe environments for women but if we are in a revolution now I mean we are in this really significant time I didn't think we'd see it this this such a big kind of thing in our times yeah. of so much awareness being brought to the issue so I think the things for me to still be very mindful of and obviously the thing that that I'm very focused on is and I talked about this recently um, in an essay I wrote 
is that in, you know, time, in time magazine. magazine? Yeah, exactly. How's that? I was great. Bruno Papandreou like, having an op-ed in Time. Exactly. It's doors are opening, but like some women don't know where the door is, and I think it's still really important to remind ourselves that like there's still a whole subset of women who don't know how to access the business, and so I do think it's our job in a big way to continue to kind of find openings for those women. And that's a big part of like the mandate of our company. If you could go back to that girl growing up in Adelaide who didn't have a lot, what would you tell her now? Keep doing what you're doing. I mean, (laughs) drink less. (laughs) Might say drink less. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on Aussies in Hollywood. And uh, it's so great that there's so many of of you out there doing incredible things and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks, Jenny. <laughs> I'm so in awe of what Bruna's achieved as an Aussie or just any woman in Hollywood, really, and she's definitely one of the most hardworking women I know. She really believes in giving back to and she's mentored a lot of people through Australians in film over here, finding time always to talk about movies and encourage and inspire the next generation look out for her two movies that are coming out this year the first is the nightingale which is directed by jennifer kent who made the babadook and little monsters starring oscar winner lapita nyongo both of them shot in australia and as you could tell listening to bruna that's where she wants to make all her movies so maybe you should check out my podcast with nicole kidman who was equally raving about Bruna. And I'll see you next time on Aussies in Hollywood. Aussies in Hollywood is presented by me, Jenny Cooney, and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. The executive producer is Jenny Goggin. For more episodes of Aussies in Hollywood, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look me up on iTunes.